Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. There has been a long, steady drumbeat, drums sounding against any notion of the inclusion of Christ or Judeo-Christian ethics in the public square. Uh, Again, this notion that we've been making this slow shift from what had been the view, the vision of our founding fathers of creating a nation where there could be freedom of religion, which heretofore our founding fathers had not quite experienced in England, to an atmosphere today, uh, some 250, 300 years after our founding, that seems to be taking on a decidedly different atmosphere, that of freedom from religion. To get some insights on this, our special guest tonight as we lead off the program is Larry Towton. Larry is the founder and executive director of Fixed Point Foundation, an initiative dedicated to defending and promoting Christianity in the public square. He's also the author of a new book entitled The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief, newly published by Thomas Nelson and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as, no doubt, on Amazon.com. And Larry, great to have you with us on the program tonight. Delight to be with you. Why, this is interesting as we sort of watch, um, I don't know, I guess in many respects it's sort of the proverbial uh, frog in the kettle effect that we're seeing here in America today, where slowly and ever surely there seems to be this march, this parade, at least in the public arena, uh, where we've moved from the notion, as I said earlier, of a nation that provides freedom of religion to those that are now trying to recraft our nation into one uh, that provides freedom from religion. Well, it's like so many other things in our, our culture that are gradually being redefined as they are uh, amputated uh, from their Christian origin, that is to say, from the, from the anchor <laughs> that, that had once held fast uh, not just our, our culture, but our very vocabulary. So, for example, um, uh, tolerance is now understood to, to mean um, diversity is meant to to uh, mean uh, uh, just the celebration of differences, no matter what they are. Supposed uh, as opposed rather to um, uh, a traditional American view, which is born out of uh, out of Christianity, that we seek to overcome um, our differences uh, for the sake of a, a uh, of one cause. Um, and these are the kinds of things that are happening where we're redefining. Um, redefining the roles of men and women, all kinds of things. And as you have said, there is a, there's a kind of slow leak, as I like to put it, of Christianity out of the culture. And in my book, The Great Effect, I'm trying to give a glimpse to readers through, through a narrative, through a very compelling, very real story of, of my daughter, of what a culture looks like when it is completely led 
can influence. And of course, a lot of this is done with this notion, as those in the public square that are pushing this would try to promote, uh, that we don't want uh, any undue religious uh, in, uh, influence on anyone, that we're trying to create a society uh, of great tolerance here, and that the Christianity, for example, has a history of tremendous intolerance, and they will typically quote things like uh, the Salem witch trials of, of American history and folklore, um, and perhaps more history than folklore now. Now that I think of it, but uh, from that perspective, as well as to things like uh, you know what happened with the Inquisitions in Europe, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and and they use many of these events to try and argue this notion that Christianity, in in particular, and maybe its companion religion, Judaism, are are vile, evil, oppressive religions, and they're just simply trying to create an atmosphere of greater tolerance. Well, uh, that is just a bunch of sheer nonsense. Um, the 20th century was an experiment in secularism, and it was a century that saw well north of 100 million people dead. Now, that is, that is more than all of the war all previous centuries combined. That's not just the you know, quote-unquote Christian offenses, that's the enlistment of Muslims in the mix, and Hindus, and, and, uh, and Judy, all of it. None of them come even close to the horrors that we saw that were perpetrated secular regimes in the 20th century. Um, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't um, uh, the Jews who were, uh, who were wiping out um, Germans. It was, uh, uh, it was uh, a fascist, a, a radically secularist uh, regime that was pushing these people into gas chambers and, um, you know, saw uh, globally about 50 million people dead. Um, This attempt um, at revisionist history uh, is something we all need to be very vigilant of, um, because uh, quite clearly Christ commanded uh, that his message to be advanced with the sword. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the, the... poster boy for um, atheism these days is a guy who makes these types of arguments. Well, as I, the point I've made to him is, you know, if I, if I kill you in the name of science, does that make me scientific? Well, of course not. Um, any more than somebody who says that they do something in the name of Christ. Christ himself predicted uh, in John chapter 16 that people would kill uh, in the name of God, uh, would do these kinds of things. We we know this, um, but we have to to discerning about this. And I and I will say this: even the radical secularists, you know, who are making these kinds of arguments that Christianity is dangerous, they are at least making some subtle distinctions, um, uh, whether they want to acknowledge them or not. Notice that they're saying these things mostly about Christians who are, as a rule, a tolerant people. Notice they're not saying them a, a whole lot about Muslims, uh, people who are known to be quite intolerant of criticism of, of, of their beliefs. Christopher Hitchens, also a famed atheist, and I write about this in my book, The Grace Effect, he and I, uh, he's a friend of mine, somebody I've debated publicly, uh, and privately, we drove from his apartment in Washington, D.C., all the way to my home in Birmingham, Alabama. Along the way, we studied the Gospel of John. This was a follow-up to um, a challenge I'd made to him a couple of years before. I assure you, Christopher Hitchens does not get in the car 
with a Muslim in a bulky overcoat. Uh, you know, so he is making some distinctions, um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, about Christians, whether or not they want to acknowledge this publicly or not. We understand what the effect of grace is. Uh, we understand that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that none should perish but all have everlasting life. So we understand the effect of grace. But now let's talk about this from the perspective of your experience in uh, in traveling to the former Soviet Union, the Ukraine to be specific, known uh, by many in that part of Eastern Europe, and uh, the former Soviet Union is kind of the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, and um, the efforts of your family to adopt a young Ukrainian orphan by the name of Sasha. Uh, yes. Um, I, I, I'll let me back up just a wee bit and, and say this. I think that we as Christians don't fully understand and appreciate grace. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. We speak of grace quite rightly as that thing which changes us, with, which transforms us in an instant when we repent of our sins and we receive Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what we mean when we speak of grace. But that's, that doesn't mark the outer boundaries of God's gracious activities. There's another form of grace that he gives, and it's it's what we refer to as common grace. And, and common grace is that, that grace, you know, Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount that God sent his rain and the sun, you know, on the, on the just and the, uh, and the wicked alike, you know, that his goodness overflows even to those who, who, um, who don't believe. What I'm calling the grace effect is a, a particular a kind of, of manifestation of common grace, meaning this, that it's a kind of grace that God gives to a culture only when there is a significant presence of his people in it. And so my argument in the book is this, you know, my wife and I, we travel to Ukraine. Um, I think your your uh, listeners will find very compelling this story in, in this book, The Grace Effect, and how um, we're uh, in this process, as you quite rightly mentioned, to to try to adopt Sasha. And I've been in that part of the world many times. I've been in Ukraine four or five times before this, Eastern Europe, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Poland, and so forth. So I was not unfamiliar with that part of the world. I was familiar with its business practices and the corruption. But I guess I was naive enough to believe that we wouldn't experience it to the degree that we experienced it when it involved the life of a child. Every single uh, official that we encountered, we had to bribe. And this, this begins to raise some interesting questions um, about why is it that they have such a disregard for the least of these, for the widowed, the orphaned, the sick, um, the elderly? Uh, is it because um, Americans are just innately better? Well, no. Uh, scripture would tell us that human nature is the same the world over. But the, the, the uh, public discourse in this country, indeed throughout the West, has been gentled by the grace effect, meaning by the presence of God's people, our society has been made a little more tolerable. And if we haven't been made good uh, by it, we've been made a little less evil than we might be. And the result is we, we do have a concern for our poor. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation tonight. We are visiting with the founder and executive director of Fixed Point Foundation, Larry Towton, the book, The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief. We've often heard this uh, false promise of socialism. We're kind of seeing some of this uh, play itself out, I think, uh, in the wake of what's been going on here in the United States in the last uh, couple of three years here. Uh, but, but Larry, certainly this was sort of uh, brought to perfection in countries like the, the former Soviet Union. We're seeing a lot of it, too, in Europe. Um, and this idea that, uh, as we said before, um, uh, instead of the government serving the people, the people serve the government. How does that, when we create that that God-neutral atmosphere and suddenly people are there to serve the government instead of the other way around, and we have exercised God from the public square, how does that, what does that picture look like? Paint that picture for our listeners. Sure. Uh, it, it, I, let me give a concrete example of, of what that looks like. Um, the kind of governments that appear in totalitarian regimes didn't happen by accident. They came about because uh, the people with the guns <laughs> were, were a people who had a different view of human life. And I want to be clear, most of them were people who believed very sincerely that their view was the correct view and that they were doing uh, uh, the world uh, a favor by doing what they did. People like Vladimir Lenin and Mao and Stalin and Paul Pot and, and so forth. Uh, and, and what it ultimately looks like is this. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, who was not himself a Christian, but who was unquestionably heavily influenced by, again, what I call the grace effect in my book, the grace effect, that is, by the presence of Christians. Uh, he, I mean, he had his own translation of the Bible, for heaven's sake, and, and required that it, that it be used uh, in his own teaching. Um, a guy like Jefferson is quoted as saying, it's better than, that, that ten uh, guilty men should go free than that one innocent man should be uh, um, imprisoned for something that he didn't do. Now, contrast that with, with the view in, let's say, Russia, for example. A few years ago, well, now it's been 12 years ago, in 1999, there were bombings that were taking place there um, by Chechens. Uh, who were protesting the war in their part of the world and, and, uh, and so conducting some terrorist acts in places like Moscow. Well, once they knew that it was somebody uh, from that region of the world who was conducting uh, these bombings, the Russian response was to arrest 11,000 people from that part of the world. Uh, the bombing stopped. But you see, they had, because they had no respect for individual life and liberty, they thought nothing of, of uh, taking that sort of action. So in contrast to, to Jefferson's view, here was a view that said it's better that, that, that 10,999 people who didn't do something should be arrested in order that we might catch the one who did. And all of this is born out of our view of humanity. And when you kick that block out, which is the foundation of Western culture as we know it, uh, what you're left with is, is, uh, is a world that's void of grace. You're left with a world that is, that is uh, uh, void of laws that have any anchor in the absolute. And so on what grounds do you 
protest your own government. All effective reform movements in the West have appealed to God. They've appealed to higher laws. The abolitionists did this. The reformers in Britain um, did this. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. did this. Uh, indeed, um, the founding fathers of this country did the same thing. But if you no longer acknowledge a higher power, to what court do you appeal when your government becomes a wicked and oppressive regime? Well, and as you point out in that example, it's the difference between revenge versus justice. Uh, Absolutely. Somebody commits a crime and they say, you know, we want to bring about justice. And so we're going to interview and research and investigate until uh, we're able to either ascertain exactly who the culpable parties are or going to smoke them out, so to speak, or they're willing to come forward as opposed to, well, somebody has done something here that's wrong. And so in order to um, eke out not justice, but revenge, if nobody comes forward, that's okay. Shoot them all. I mean, Stalin, as you point out, was, was infamous for this kind of thing. Uh, there at one point was the notion that there had been uh, some, uh, well, I'll put it this way, there had been a lack of full commitment to some of the commands of the, the commander-in-chief, uh, Joseph Stalin, during World War II, and um, uh, there was kind of the feeling at the time that a couple of key battles, specifically some of the fighting for Stalingrad, had been lost because of it, and the answer to all of that uh, was not to try and bring those that did not follow his orders uh, to justice, but rather just kill everybody, which he did. And and he ended up wiping out thousands of key military leaders that many argue uh, was a significant setback uh, to Russia's ability to effectively defend itself against the Germans in the Second World War. Of course, uh, you and I know that the, the rebuttal to that would be to say this, oh, that's so unfair. That's just one madman. But no, it isn't just one madman. This is this is the result of an entire culture that comes off of the rails. And the result is, and my daughter Sasha, having lived, um, or herself being the, the product of this kind of Soviet thinking, uh, I mean, Ukraine is, is, has been uh, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, what shall I say, the, the redheaded stepchild to, uh, uh, to, the, to Russia for centuries. Um, that the result was that to put it even more flesh-and-blood terms, is the complete degradation and the devaluing of human life. Let me use another example that was recently in the news. Perhaps your listeners are aware of this video that, that went viral on the Internet and made big news of a, a, a child in China where the cameras on the street caught images of a, of a toddler who wandered out into the road, was hit by a van. The van backed over the child, and then when they realized they'd hit a child, they drove off. Eighteen people, the cameras recorded 18 people who walked by and saw this child crying and the blood pooling around her. Another vehicle came along and whack, hit her again, and killed her. Now, that is a horrifying story, but it raises some interesting questions. Was this just a unique event in China? Well, we now have discovered that there are other reports coming from all over China that it isn't unique. And Americans, whether they're Christians or not, they hear a story like this, and they're horrified by it. But why are they horrified by it? They're horrified by it because whether they want to acknowledge it or not, they are deeply influenced by the Christian understanding of what human life is, and we don't treat it like roadkill. And so, to answer your, your, your question of, of a few minutes ago, what does a world look like when it is absent Christian influence, 
that's what it looks like. It looks like a place where the government doesn't care for people and people don't care for people. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. KFAX listeners are intimately aware and and, uh, familiar with the story that Larry shared of what happened in uh, the, the south of China here about three weeks ago, if memory served me right. Uh, and as you'll know at the time, I, I articulated my absolute utter disbelief that someone would, would commit an action of hit and run like that. And clearly when you saw the video, you saw the, the, the van hit the child, roll over the child, the driver pause for a moment, think that I hit something, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, and then proceed on and roll over the child the second time. If that wasn't horrific enough in and of itself, that as Larry points out, 18 passers-by over the course of about 12 minutes walked past that child as the blood was pooling below her and made no effort to do anything, summons anyone, contact authorities, absolutely nothing, which I think is a very apropos example of what the influence of atheistic communism does to the very soul of mankind. We'll pause on that point and come back with more. A look at the grace effect, how the power of one life can reverse the corruption of unbelief. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Larry Totten, my guest, author of The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief. Your experiences of what you saw and witnessed during this process in the Ukraine, as we say, uh, this a nation under Soviet rule uh, pulled into and part of the Soviet Union uh, for many, many decades. They had suffered horribly during the Second World War, had been a very focused attack by the uh, the Germans during the war. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of genocide that took place. Uh, there are killing fields, so to speak, even in the Ukraine because of what happened during that war. Um, and then, of course, here, a nation under the influence of, of atheistic communism for the better part of, of second seven decades. Tell us a bit about what you saw and the experience in the process um, of adopting Sasha from an orphanage and what you saw in Ukrainian culture juxtaposed against what we know of, of Western culture that has the strong Judeo-Christian acknowledgement of God's existence, we'll call it, influence. Sure. Um, well, we live in a culture that right now, as I was listening to your program, you were talking quite rightly about how uh, uh, there is this effort to drive Christianity from the culture. And as I like to say, it's being treated increasingly like smoking. You know, it's, it's an unpleasant thing, and none of us want your secondhand religion, so why don't you go do it in the designated areas, but don't bring it into any of the public sphere. What I'm trying to say in the grace effect is this. In, in It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is given a, a, a belief he doesn't bring much to the table. And he's given a glimpse by an angel of what his hometown of Bedford Falls would look like if he had never been born. It's not even called Bedford Falls. It's Pottersville, and it's a terrible place. Well, I'm arguing in the grace effect that that America would be Pottersville to the 10th power. If you remove the Christians from the culture, what you have is the kind of things that we experience. 
where human beings are, are not treated as having intrinsic value. Uh, my daughter, Sasha, had been abandoned at birth. She had been raised in three orphanages. Orphanages, by the way, that were all running off of atheistic principles. What do those look like? Well, those are principles that say that human beings don't have souls. We only need to address physical needs. Uh, and they, they scarcely address those. I mean, children weren't given um, a hot shower. She was given one bath a week. She wore the same clothes. Uh, she wasn't given toilet paper. Um, she had exposed nerves and damaged teeth. She was given no education. She's HIV positive. These were the kinds of things that were going on in the orphanage. And, and that's before I even get to the, the kinds of things like human trafficking. Um, the children, 30% of those who have uh, uh, special needs will be dead by the age of 18. 60% of the girls will become prostitutes. 30% of uh, of, of the children will will become uh, substance abusers. Ten percent will be dead. You know these are these are the the kinds of things that happen in a culture when you begin with the wrong premise. You see, a worldview is it's like glasses through which you understand the world, and your your view of God uh, of of His character um, or His existence and non-existence will determine how you view man. And that will, in turn, influence the kind of government that you create. And the kind of governments that they created saw human beings as temporal beings who were there to serve the eternal state. And this stands in, in stark contrast to a traditional Western view, which is based on a Christian worldview, by the way, that says that man is an eternal being. And the state is a temporal institution that is there to serve him. So we begin to see just how radically the absent, absence of Christian belief, it's, you knock over that domino and they just keep falling. And you really see then this juxtapose of the notion of government serving the people, which is uh, traditionally the, 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 the Christianized Western viewpoint of democracy, uh, such as what we have in, in countries like the United States or Canada, and then just the opposite, the, the 180 of that, where the people are there to serve the government. And, you know, that, that might just seem to be an easy flip. But there is something very profound about that, and we're going to have Larry articulate it at, at, at a deeper level exactly what is the impact of that. And I think it's important, and I'll say this just before we take a timeout because I know we're a, lit, a bit late for the break here, but I think it's very important that we pay close attention to this because we're in the middle of a big political cycle right now. We are facing uh, a scant year from uh, this month. Uh, one of the, perhaps the most pivotal elections that this nation has faced. And we're seeing slowly this shift taking place um, in the American psyche, in the American politic, uh, away from uh, the allowance of the influence of grace on our lives, uh, a, a, a pulling away from the transforming power of grace, as uh, Larry Towden articulates inside his new book, The Grace Effect. And instead of saying that we need to embrace the impact, the influence of the Judeo-Christian ethic, 
uh, as the, the compass, the moral compass that drives our nation. Instead, we're moving towards more of an institutionalized atheism. We see this taking place in politics. We see the effect of it in the public schools. Uh, now it's getting to the place where, you know, you, if you're going to practice your religion, make sure that you do it quietly, privately, and behind closed doors so that nobody is aware of it. The notion of sort of banishing Christianity from American public life. What is the impact of all of that? What if we could just wave a magic wand and be done with the influence of the Judeo-Christian ethic from public life? What would the new public look like? Many of the lessons that Larry brought back from his experiences in the Ukraine, I think, are ones we need to take very careful note and consideration of. Let's talk a bit, Larry, about the experience your family had in the adoption of Sasha um, and the the change about, uh, the turnabout, rather, that's taken place in her life. Uh, yes, uh, boy, I tell you, it's been huge. And uh, and I want to be clear that this book isn't, uh, you know, it's not Anne of Green Gables or Heidi or Christie or something like that. There's a much larger story and narrative that is, uh, that is being told here about uh, culture itself. But Sasha is a metaphor here. Um, for what what God can do to entire nations, and in her own life, she had uh, she had experienced uh, the the material, the spiritual, the the uh, emotional uh, and intellectual deprivation that that comes in a society that is absent the what I call the Gracie fact when that's not there the kind of common graces that God gives through uh, the presence of Christian people, there is a, there is a, uh, a, a very uh, ugly side um, of life. And uh, here she was in circumstances like that. We bring her back um, to the States. Um, you know, it's, it's a little, uh, you know, exciting for us to have observed in her. She's been with us for about two and a half years now. But to, to see her um, experience so many things for the first time um a warm uh, a warm bed her own bedroom um a hot shower every day boy she really runs up my hot water bill. <laughs> um she enjoys those things she enjoys um having a father a mother um brothers these are things she gives thanks to god for every day and they're the things that the typical american child of course would would um take for granted um would have that opportunity to take for granted. Also seeing her get appropriate uh, medical attention. Um, imagine going around for years um, with exposed nerves um, in your teeth. Your teeth are, as, uh, as the pediatrician said, um, her teeth were bombed out. Um, she had to have, uh, I think it was seven teeth pulled. Um, I, I believe that's correct. And, uh, you know, so seeing this kind of transformation and then watching Sasha step from a culture where human life was not deemed to be as valuable and where there wasn't appropriate care for the orphan uh, into a culture where it, there is still a, a residual of this kind of grace of which I speak uh, is rather extraordinary. And, you know, and for her to, to, to uh, step from a world that the radical um, secularists would give us the grace effect is giving you a picture of what that world would look like. And I don't mean, by the way, that they are aware of it. They're very well-intentioned. They think that they can maintain the kind of culture that we currently have um, and still, you know, get rid of God. But it's like cutting off the 
limb uh, on which you sit. It just simply cannot be done. So uh, I think Sasha's life trumps any argument that anyone can make against the power of God's grace to transform a life. Larry, we appreciate uh, you joining us tonight to tackle this topic that, quite frankly, an hour doesn't even begin to to do it justice, uh, at least to give the listeners a glimpse of, obviously, the reality of what we're facing in our country today, but, but what the end result can be if, if good men fail to do anything, if good men do nothing, if we do not prevail uh, in standing firm for our faith— not just for the preservation of our rights as people of faith in our country and the ability to exercise freedom of religion, First Amendment, blah, 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 but for the literal preservation of the nation and what this country has stood for, for both ourselves and for the world. The book, again, is called The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief. The book, as I mentioned earlier, is published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it online through Larry's website at graceeffect.com. That's graceeffect.com. And again, our thanks to uh, Larry Towton for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've often, I think, on the topic of taxes as Americans, drawn the conclusion that historically it was things like the Boston Tea Party and the sense of taxation without representation that spurred the American Revolution and brought America to where she is today. My next guest, though, will suggest mm, not quite true. Played a role, to be sure. But in fact, instead of the revolution sparking, uh, sparked by high taxes, it would instead be outrage against British attempts to suppress God-given those so-called inalienable rights that we see articulated in the Constitution that we have today. Some insights now as we're joined by the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. He's also the author of 16 best-selling books. His latest is entitled By the Hand of Providence. How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. And, Rod Gregg, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Glad to be here. What headed you down this trajectory? I mean, obviously, you've spent a lot of your life in the arena of, of looking at the Battle of Gettysburg in one of your books. You, you, you've been very much focused on the founding of our nation and, and the roots that we have. And, and I think, to be sure, most of us, certainly people listening to a program like this, see the faith-based roots of our nation but to take it a step further now and, and suggest that as much as we've typically understood the American Revolution to be sparked by taxation without representation actually coming down to something a lot more valuable, quite frankly, uh, this, this, I think, is some new news for folks. Well, I think it's, uh, it's an old story that needs to be re- retold because it's been uh, neglected in our day and has been uh, largely forgotten uh, by, uh, by our nation. But it it's really uh, goes to the heart of who we are and, and what we became as a nation. And the American Revolution was a faith-based revolution because Americans were a faith-based people, and that faith was a biblical one. So the things that you mentioned, uh, taxation, uh, lack of representation in Parliament, uh, events that uh, were somewhat of a catalyst like the Boston Tea Party, other protests, all those things were, uh, had a role, and all of them uh, were kind of the dominoes falling but uh, they were symptomatic of something deeper, and that is that the American people, as, as you put it well, 
um, American people were, were biblical. Colonial American people and the Americans at the time of the Revolution were uh, biblically literate. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody was devout. You had the, the devout, you had the nominal, you had the uninterested. But the, the American thought at the time was uh, firmly founded on the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, the culture was um, predominantly Protestant. It was overwhelmingly Christian, and it was almost universally Judeo-Christian in its approach. And that was the foundation of American culture, law, and government. So when these events occurred, these controversial events, over a period of time, increasing numbers of uh, Americans came to, to view King George III and Parliament as attempting to usurp the higher law of God and to uh, force the law of man instead. They saw them as uh, usurping uh, what they called inalienable or God-given rights, rights to life, to liberty, to what they called the, uh, the freedom to pursue happiness. And they came to view, eventually, uh, in great numbers, uh, King George III as a tyrant. That's why uh, American troops marched off to war in the Revolution under battle flags adorned with the ba- with the slogan that said, "Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God." You you take the title of your new book by the hand of providence um, from a quote from George Washington, um, and I think as we think of him as uh, you know one of the key founding fathers. Uh, uh, the first president of the United States, although was somebody in there actually for a couple of days or something. I forget all the details on that, but 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 widely recognized as the first president of the United States. Uh, as we see the role that he played, Valley Forge, all the way through the list, give us some insights in terms of this man in particular and the the role that his faith played in taking the risk that he did in the founding of our nation. Well, and some people have made the, the case, uh, I think, kind of a weak one, the case uh, in recent uh, years that the presidents of the Continental Congress uh, in those days before the Constitution, during the, the time of the Articles of Confederation, were in a sense presidents, but they were not president of the United States. Uh, Washington was the first. It's, it's really, you really cannot overemphasize the influence of George Washington. Now, uh, the American Revolution was really taken forward by the American people. They're often overlooked. And the leaders reflected the worldview, the faith of the American people. So you had the American people, you had their leaders in the Continental Congress, and then you had uh, George Washington, who was really heads above all others. Um, and he was greatly influential in inspiring his officers and troops to stay in this, uh, this movement, to stay in this revolution. And he also inspired the American people. And it wasn't because... He was a good general, and he became a good general. He became a great strategist, a good tactician, but he grew into that. What inspired the American people about Washington was his character, and that character was based on his personal faith, and that faith was clearly biblical. And that faith. Talk talk to me about your research in terms of the influence on that faith, on the decisions and the risks that he took personally um, in the American Revolution. Well, Washington was um, a a low-church Anglican uh, who was uh, very serious about his faith. He was quiet about his faith. He wasn't the kind of man who would sit around, like Sam Adams, for instance, and and, 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 uh, engage or lead a dinnertime theological discussion. Uh, He was a low-church Anglican. 
he was uh, he didn't speak in uh, the vernacular of a 21st century evangelical, although his doctrine, uh, personal doctrine that he believed as a as an Anglican was certainly uh, uh, in in that category of being a historic evangelical um, Orthodox Christian doctrine. He was certainly not a deist, as some have claimed. Uh, there were very few deists actually involved among uh, the American people and, and among the founders, their leaders. Uh, the um, the historian, there was a historian uh, in the 20th century, Perry Miller, who spent his life studying the colonial era. He really was a great expert on American colonial uh, life in the colonial era. And he described it well. He said that deism was what he called an exotic plant that never took root in America because of the overwhelming influence of the biblical worldview, that Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, so a deist was one who, who believed in an impersonal God, almost like a force, uh, a, a force-type creator who uh, launched and jump-started his creation then walked away from it. That's not the God that George Washington believed in. And uh, he was consistent in both his private writings, which were voluminous, and also in his, uh, his public statements, which were many, and consistent in expressing uh, that uh, faith, which was clearly, without question, a biblical faith. And so in, uh, in Washington's uh, decision-making uh, and the things he did, the things he didn't do, really governed by this. You look, for instance, um, he stands in real contrast to some of the leadership demonstrated by British commanders uh, who went into areas sometimes, uh, particularly in the South, where um, uh, they could have probably, had they handled the war right, could probably have... Uh, Americans were all reluctant, generally reluctant revolutionaries, and the British in some areas could have uh, kindled a, a great deal of support, but their behavior, their conduct, uh, really alienated people, and it made uh, Americans in droves go over to the side of the patriot movement. Well, Washington was contrast to that in the way that he treated his enemies, the way he treated loyalist civilians. He made sure that they were not taken advantage of. He made sure that they weren't robbed and plundered like the British did. There was a real discipline there. He also uh, 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 routinely observed victories by holding worship services. Uh, he encouraged his troops to observe the national days of prayer that the Continental Congress called, and there were many of them during the Revolution. Uh, he at one time uh, urged his troops to conduct themselves, in his words, uh, a, in, with their behavior as becoming a Christian soldier. Uh, he made sure that uh, the army was equipped with chaplains, he took that very seriously and encouraged his men to uh, to pick chaplains who were strong in their faith. Uh, so you see consistently through Washington's words and his behavior, this character, and this character was reflection of his personal faith. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Rod Gregg is with us. He, of course, is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. A new book entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. We'll come back to more of our look at the role of faith in the founding of our nation as this edition of Lifeline continues.